Hello and welcome to the What's Cooking podcast with me, Beth, and my co-host, Kat. We talk to food entrepreneurs about their businesses, how they got started, and their journey so far. Today we're joined by Tessa Stewart, in-store brand researcher and business consultant for the likes of Innocent, Rude Health, Itsu, and Dalesford, and author of two Amazon five-star bestsellers, Packed and Flying Off the Shelves. Hi, Tessa. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So what was your first job sort of to do with food? I worked in a proper market research agency for Cadbury. So Cadbury was one of their main clients. And we used to have to go and test chocolate bars in focus groups. Hard job. Which was such a hard job. But (laughs) would you believe it? The people who were attending the focus group would go on strike for chocolate. So they would eye the chocolate because obviously we might have some to show them or whatever. And then about 10 minutes in, they'd they'd get restless and they'd go, "Well, well, when are we getting any? When are we getting chocolate? Because the point of the focus group is to talk to them about chocolate, not have them have their mouths full of chocolate so that they can't talk about it. Um, But it was great fun. And that's when I realised how much image is a part of food and how much emotional sustenance people get from it. Because people describing their favourite chocolate bar and how it made them feel when they ate it. That's that's when I thought, actually, this is a really interesting area to work in. And I worked on other bits of client business, like NatWest bank accounts and stuff, but I always really loved the food stuff. And so I thought, well, if I get an opportunity to do more food stuff, that would be great. And had you always been interested in food generally? Oh, yeah. I mean, my mother's a great cook and was always cooking up those amazing sort of dinner parties, you know, with kind of croque en rouge and (laughs) profiterole and this, that and the other. Very, very complicated things with about four courses and that kind of thing. So somebody was always cooking and I was always interested in food. And I guess we're quite a foodie family. Mm. I'm still very interested in food. But more, almost more interested in food businesses because I think there's such a, there's so much creativity now and there's so many different things you can make and produce. And it's just, it's just fascinating seeing what people come up with and the gaps in the market that they're filling and how they differentiate themselves. So I think it's the personalities in food that I really love. Yeah, just hearing you talk about it, I'm just thinking there's such a huge variance across brands and and the whole marketing side of things. There's, it's just huge. It's such a huge area. I'm just thinking. Yeah, that. and just when you think there are no gaps left in the market, someone comes out with something that you need and you can never not have in your cupboard. It is amazing. Well, exactly. I mean, we, you know, imagine the time pre-hummus. <laughs> but there was a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now you can get everything hummus. Everything hummus. Chocolate, avocado. Sweet hummus. And, yeah. And I'm, I, I think hummus is an example of something that people buy a lot of, and it's much harder to find the gaps there of something that people will buy on a weekly basis. It's easy to make a chilli jam or something that people might use less often. So finding that is really the holy, holy grail. When did you start working for yourself or when did you start making the move to do some, I guess, consultancy? And I got sacked. I got sacked from my, my last job. They told me I was hugely disruptive. That's probably a good thing. I know. I have no <laughs> idea what they meant. No idea. But nine weeks in, they were like, well, you know, you're, you're disruptive. And I said, well, is there anything wrong with the work I'm doing for the clients or anything? And they were like, no, no. But, but you know, you're disruptive. We need you to leave. So I had a three-month contract with them. And I'm married to a lawyer. 
so he could enforce the payment of the three-month contract period, you know, notice period. So that meant that I would have some money to think about how I could work for myself. So, yeah, I got pushed, if you like. <laughs> I had to jump. But I wanted to have kids as well, and working in a market research agency was really not compatible with that because they want you to go to Wolverhampton or Birmingham or Manchester three nights a week and run focus groups. I mean, you can't you can't have a baby and do that. Mm. So I just wanted a bit more control of my own destiny, which I think a lot of people who start up on their own, that's what they want. Yeah, Absolutely. and using something like that as an opportunity to kind of kickstart the new chapter is really yeah. great. I was very nervous because being a freelancer then was more unusual. I think now nobody would bat an eyelid if you yeah, say you're freelance. And it's a much easier environment, I think, for you to work for yourself. There's so much help out there. Got all these co-working spaces and stuff, and it's a lot easier. There wasn't any of that. There weren't any sort of support groups, really, for, mm. for freelancers. So it felt like quite a scary thing. But my dad sat me down and he said, come on, you can do this. And at that point, what was the idea I got my real idea about doing the in-store research because I wanted to work for Innocent Drinks who were about half a mile away from where I lived and I was completely obsessed with them. And I was interested also at the time because there were so many new food businesses and I would email them and say, you know, I've worked for Cadbury and Nestle and, you know, do you have any research? And they would invite me in and then they go, look, we've got no budget. There's nothing we can do. You know, we don't have the budget for focus groups. It's like two and a half thousand pounds you know for eight people mm-hmm. a lot of money so I said well hang on maybe there's another way of doing it and I was talking to Firefly Tonics and they had just got listed in what was the precursor to Whole Foods and they said well could you go in and hang out in the store and just see how people relate to our product on the shelf whether they buy it at lunchtime whether they notice it you know we've got 500 quid you know what could you do and I said sure yeah I'll give that a go you know never done it before but it seemed like it was so useful and helpful for them because they tried out their products on friends and family, but they still didn't understand why some things were selling and some things weren't selling. And so going and talking to customers was just the most helpful thing because they were people who weren't related to them, didn't know the brand, you know, were coming to it fresh and you really needed those people's input. And so once I'd done something useful for them, I then did in fact get in touch with Innocent. I offered them my kids and they said, well, we don't need your kids for research. And I said, well, do you need any help with the kids? Because I've had kids and I've done kids research. And they said, no, 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 we're fine, we're fine. And I emailed them about a week later and went, well, how did it go with the kids' research? And they said, oh, it was, you know, it was really challenging. It was really challenging. And they said, would, would you like to help us? Can we send you a research brief? So I actually did some focus groups for them for their kids' drink because we needed to talk to mums and kids. And we needed the mums to bring the kids. And But, I mean, the kids were wild. They were kind of running around the room. And we only had... they. It comes in a little white wedge. And at the time, it wasn't properly finished or anything. We just had this little wedge-shaped tetra pack, not like a brick, but like a kind of wedge, which was important to Innocent because it needed to be a certain size for the portion that they wanted to make. And we had to see if the kids could work out how to get a straw into it and hold it because you had to sort of hold it from behind and jab the straw in. So you can imagine. And the place we were doing it had white leather sofas. And we've got all these mocked up drinks (laughs) and straws and wild seven-year-old kids who've been sitting still and being really good. And then you give them juice. So it was was crazy. 
but then I started doing so I started doing work for Innocent and I wanted to kind of pioneer my different approach and they said okay we've we've got a new product that we want to test it's a noodle pot uh, why don't you take some mock-ups into Sainsbury's put them on the shelves and we'll ask the store manager if we can do it and see how that works before we go to the expense of doing all the packaging and the branding because we've got two different alternatives for packaging and that was brilliant but they wouldn't let me draw the customer's attention to these products on the shelf they had to just sit on the shelf without me saying to people you know what are you buying could you Mm. look at these which is a really long and painful way of doing this sort of research because if you're waiting for people to touch them you might quite wait quite a long time Mm. so I'm stationed behind the discounted cheesecakes at the end of the aisle and I'm just literally stalking and lurking in a you know in a kind of puffer coat because it was bloody freezing because it was chilled out <laughs> uh, and luckily a lot of people did go up and touch them because they were next to some of the innocent veg pots so that was quite good but then I had another problem which is I'd be talking to someone about the two different packaging options which is better do you want to see through the lid do you want to see through the side is it clear that you know you pour hot water on it and it's it'll be ready in three minutes all of the communications I was testing and while we were doing that of course we were creating you know, uh, something going on in the aisle that people were intrigued by. So people would come in and while I'm discussing it, a hand would sneak in and they would try and take one of our mock-ups that we had off the shelf. And I'd be like, oh God, oh God, no. No, you can't, no, you can't take that. A, you can't eat it because we made it in an innocent kitchen this morning so it's not safe for people to eat. And B, I've only got six of them so you can't go off. So I'd be trying to interview someone top speed, trying to clock the other guy who'd got it in his trolley bill at this point, be heading off down the aisle. I'd be like, oh, my God, we're running up. I'm sorry, sir, you can't eat that. Well, why can't I have it? Why can't I? And having to explain all that. So that was quite challenging. I mean, now now I've sort of, you know, kind of mastered that thing. But it's extraordinary how if you start creating a diversion in the aisle, any kind of conversation, people are just immediately interested and sort of come over and have a look. And you must get really different feedback from doing versus the focus group because you're seeing it in context, aren't you? You're That's where you're going to pick it up and that's where you're going to buy it. Whereas in a, in a room with, with seven other people, it's not it's not very natural. It's not really natural. Focus groups aren't really natural at all. No. I mean, I've been doing them for years because that was the accepted way of doing yeah, market yeah. research. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you think about it, you wouldn't naturally sit down with seven strangers in, in a room with a mirror on the wall where you're pretty sure a client is watching you through that mirror and it's all very odd and strange. And also they're being paid quite a lot of money, like 40 quid, to attend a focus group. So, of course, then the pressure is on to be agreeable and say nice things about what to perform for the moderator who's running the group. And I just, I always felt really uncomfortable with the process. I felt that it was quite manipulative and quite staged mm. uh, and actually I've had such great conversations in the hours with people and people are really helpful and you really see how they shop so I was doing something for Oaxaca and it was half term and there were mums with kids and they wanted to indulge the kids and they trundled into the kind of meal kits aisle and they're not giving them much time at all because they're there with the kids and it's literally about kind of five seconds of attention oh we'll have that one which is the one we normally get which is it's how we all shop actually we don't shop in a very considered way. Not for our staples. We might if we were browsing for new things. And I think that's the thing. You've just got to try and grab people really, really quickly with your branding. Yeah, and I think you're right about it being in context because sitting in a room and being asked how you would behave, you've got to be very self-aware and 
to yeah. know to be able to accurately give an answer about what your decision would be in that moment whereas actually if if you're there watching them physically reaching for something but you get a bit closer to the unconscious impulses that mm. have driven them to buying that thing because we do if you've read thinking fast and slow um by this kind of guru called daniel kahneman you know we have these different systems in our brain we have this one which just operates and does lots of things automatically for us and then we've got the other brain which we use to rationalize those actions afterwards subsequently so I mean I'm not kidding myself that when I say to people you know why did you pick that up I try and avoid the why word in fact I say what made you pick that up because you, you don't want that rational bit to kick in you want to get as close as you can to their instinctive kind of behavior and the minute they start going into marketing speak and people often do oh you know I think this and I think and you think well you know stop right here because I want the really early reactions are the valid ones. So with Innocent, you mentioned they were trying to decide on packaging. What other kind of things are people trying to achieve from the in-store research? Well, I did something for Unilever and they've got a product called Red Red Stews, which has just launched in Whole Foods. And they wanted to undertake the process of new product development in a much more entrepreneurial way. So they gave me some mock-ups for for this, I suppose it's like, it's a bit unfair of me to say better pot noodle, but it, it's effectively a better pot noodle. It's a vegan pot noodle, but it's got freeze-dried ingredients in it. It's actually, I'm make, making it sound not nice at all, but actually they're really nice. And it's got it's got an African theme and it's got kind of freeze-dried beans and things like that in it. Um, so it rehydrates really nice. It's got proper food values and it's nutritionally sound. And... They said, well, we want to test that out on young foodie Londoners because the concept had come from Zoe's Garner Kitchen in Pop Brixton. So they said to me, can you go down to Brixton Market? We've we've come up with the pots and the ingredient story and their kind of African theme. And can you just go and test it on people almost in the street? So I, was like, okay. <laughs> so I went down to Brixton Market and found a nice agreeable coffee shop and said, look, do you mind if I sit here and I'll buy coffee and food and whatever, whatever? And I just sat there and I waited for people to come along and order their avocado toast. And then I would whip the products out of my bag and just, excuse me, you look like a young foodie. Oh, yes, I am, they would say, which was all they needed to be to qualify. And then I would show them the product and see, you know, what their reactions were um, and what they thought about it. And it worked really well because actually you'd have a, a lot of young people very engaged in branding and very interested in the whole thing. And it was vegan, so that's also quite interesting. So... I filmed them as well. So you'd get the reaction. They could turn the pot around. They go, well, actually, I don't understand this. So I don't like the design here. Or what is this ingredient? I don't understand what this African ingredient is. So I could, we could take that back to the designers and the new product people and say, look, these aren't really understood. Maybe lead with a more familiar bean that people have heard of and then add in the African bit. And then when they got a bit further on and they had an actual product, because at that point we just weighted the pots. They didn't have anything real in we did it in an office. So we went to an office in Camden and just said, can we hang out, out over lunchtime? People came up and had a chat and look at the products. And we watched how they kind of reacted to them when they saw them and the aroma and what they liked. So we were just trying to make it be more real all the way along the line. And it's, fingers crossed, I think been very successful. Certainly Unilever are very pleased with that approach. So, so that's good. That's so yeah, for new product development, it's quite... I mean, you mm -hmm. could you could 
you could we could have taken them into a supermarket and done it on the shelves, but they just wanted to, you know, be one step closer to the ground, I think was their phrase. And Pot Brixton's the perfect location for that because yeah. it's young and people that go there are generally there because there's such exciting food concepts mm-hmm. going on. And they wanted it to be really different. And there isn't much space when you think of all the food concepts that have been done. I mean, African is about the last one. We yeah. also did a cross-section with some creative African people living in London. Now, the thing is, they come from all different countries. So they took issue with the issue of Africanness as a generic descriptor. Yeah. Which was interesting because they said, actually, you know, you started with Red Red, which is a Ghanaian stew. But, you know, are you going to do other countries and how's it going to work? Because obviously they had much more knowledge, but we kind of needed to see whether it was okay for them because it was very much a kind of London remix of African food. And we just wanted to see if if they liked the vibe, which luckily they did, because it was important not to offend anybody in this process. There's a lot less sub-Saharan African. There's a lot of North African cuisine in London, pop-ups and supper clubs and things like that. There's a lot, lot less... At least it's not on my radar of I mean, occasionally you see Ethiopian or yeah Ghanaian, but I, you don't I don't see a lot I don't see a lot of variation, so maybe that is to come that'd be nice well yeah. talk talk to Zoe at Ghana Kitchen because yeah. I think she's doing great things, yeah she's kind of spearheading the sounds, movement yeah, that sounds really nice so where did you go? You emailed innocent and you did a focus group with them and you you talked about doing the in-store research with Unilever where did you go in sort of creating your business from there where did I go from there well I'd been inviting people in the food business to contribute to a blog for quite a long time because I met John Vincent who's the founder of Leon and he said to me you wrote me a cheeky email to get in front of me he's obviously quite good at writing why don't you you know, invite people to contribute to a blog. And so I did. I actually just emailed a whole bunch of people that I thought might give me five things that they wished they'd known before they started out in business. And and they all responded, and I put them up on this blog. And then people started coming to me and saying, well, can you do some food research for us? But at that point, I only really had a, a blog because I wasn't doing it in a major way. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to take this blog down, have a proper website, what am I going to do with all these lovely contributions on the blog? And somebody said to me, well, put them in a book. So I put them in a book and whacked them out on Amazon. And people loved it. And I was really, really amazed. <laughs> I w- I'm still really touched by people who come up to me and say, I've bought your, your book or your, your two books, as I've got now. Because I just, pe- I knew there was nothing there. I knew there was nothing on Amazon for food businesses. There just was nothing. And I thought, well, even if I put this together, and it's probably not as good as it could be, it's still going to help some people. And I put it out there, and it's been a bestseller ever since, which is it's astounding, really. And then I did a sequel because people said, well, okay, that's all about starting out and packaging and branding, but what do I do now? I've got a product, and it's on the shelf. What do I do? So then I thought, well, I'll repeat the exercise, and I'll do flying off the shelves, which is what you need to do to get in front of stores and get in front of buyers and when you've got your product on the shelf, how you sample and how you, you know, try and make things fly off the shelf. So it was really people saying to me, can you write another one? And those two things were, those two books were just amazingly helpful in, I suppose, creating a degree of 
authority maybe or sense that I knew what I was talking about I mean you know they were just like they became a business card mm. so I could send them to people and people would then say oh yeah come in come and see me so I did kind of use them like that and trying to get in front of people that I was interested in working with but it was all it was all much more random than it sounds it wasn't planned it, you know it just kind of happened as I'm sure you know in your own business things <laughs> just happen yeah. And did you um, self-publish those or were they, did you yeah. work with the publisher? Yeah, I did them on Amazon CreateSpace because I had come across a friend who'd done it and she said to me, honestly, it's much easier than you think. Mm. You know, you just create a manuscript. I did go to a very good food branding agency to do the covers for both of them. But the first one I drew, I drew the kind of Tetra shape and just said to them, I just want you to colour it up because I knew they needed to have impact and I bartered taking a client of mine to this design agency for work and said, well, if I bring some clients to you, will you do me the covers? And they said, yes, we will. So that that really helped because they looked quite professional and I had them professionally mm-hmm. edited, which I think you need to do. No, they're very, very eye-catching, I think, because I actually, I yeah, like when I was starting my business, I was saying I heard you talking on a podcast ordered your book the first one and I didn't really have that much to I didn't have many orders so I just read it cover to cover one day and I remember thinking because you were talking about I'm very grateful um, I'm very grateful (laughs) and um but yeah one I I remember thinking on that day that you really were practicing what you preached because in the book you're talking so much about how you need to not blend in and how many you know products have packaging that looks nice in your hand but then against everything else it's just sort of lost and the covers of your books are so so eye-catching and when they're on the shelf they really pop out well I you know I looked at them on Amazon and I guess it was almost at the beginning when people were buying things on mobile phones but I you know when you know when you go on Amazon you look at the covers the covers are really important Mm -hmm. you know they have to really stand out I've actually had a few designers who've said to me your covers are far too brash (laughs) never have done them that way and I I thought well you know they've caught your attention otherwise you wouldn't be emailing me so (laughs) I've got them I brought them along here because I I love them so much um but this one this one the one here with the Hellman's lookalike mayonnaise Mm -hmm. that got me Unilever they found the book online and they bought it and then got in touch which was just extraordinary yeah. So I, they have been incredibly useful in terms of bringing people to me. I mean, that was when I got the email. I was like, ah, <laughs> that's Unilever. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, yeah. So and they, they, they did say to me, "Ahem, those are that is one of our brands in your on the cover of your <laughs> flying off the shelves." And I said, "Well, my designer told me it was fine to to put your brand yeah. on there if I didn't put the name on." And it's yeah. so interesting, and it really, I mean, that kind of illustrates the point. For listeners, it's basically Hellman's and in inverted commas, mayonnaise, Heinz baked beans and um, cornflakes, but without the branding. But you immediately know what they are because those brands are so strong, the colours and, and the, the shapes. shapes. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's really interesting. And I think that point that you've just made, that's the visual equity that you build in the mind of your customer. So I often, if I'm speaking, I'll say to people, just tell me the colour you associate with Coke. You know, of course I'll say red. Uh, close your eyes, describe the Heinz baked bean tin to me and people can do it. You know, so it's 
that's what people will remember. If they're going down the aisle, they'll remember roughly where you are, roughly probably the shape of your packaging, but a lot, the colours. And that's how you, that those are just the visual cues that people keep to navigate it. I mean, in the early days, a lot of people didn't even describe innocent drinks to me as, as innocent. They just said those little tasty drinks in little bottles that you find everywhere. So they weren't even using the brand name. People get very hung up on, you know, people need to remember my brand name. Well, actually, if they remember your visual equity, that's fine. And then they know where to find you. Mm. Yeah, having a key identifier. I can picture innocent, yeah, and already. Well, you've got EK as well, which I think is very strong. You know, so so that's that's what I would think of. And I would think, oh, I know what that looks like in the Insta stories as it yeah. crumbles and across the top. That's yeah. nice. I'm glad. Is anyone else doing the kind of work that you do? Because it seems like it's a really unique approach. You're definitely because... a big name in the industry. I feel like a lot of people we've met will have your books or will be following you on, you know, social media. Everyone knows your name, sort of thing. Um, well, is I tra- there anyone else that is doing I, anything similar? I try not to look at my competitors because yeah. I think it's a really bad idea and you could drive yourself mad doing that. There are people in conventional market research agencies that will use recruiters who will recruit shoppers who will then come on what's called an accompanied shop. But I, as far as I'm concerned, I think that's still using the same process that's slightly flawed of setting up that whole thing. If I've got to be with someone and I'm receiving money for this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say polite things to make mm. it agreeable for everyone and I'm going to sound more intelligent and as if I buy more organic products than I actually do. Because I think, you know, that is what happens. But I'm not aware of people who uniquely do this, which is what I do. I mean, I do branding consultation with startups as well and I speak. But broadly, this is what I do. So, and it's crazy. And I think a lot of people just think, oh, that's the craziest thing to do. Uh, but I love it. I love it. And it's nine to five, and I don't have to go to Wolverhampton. Yeah. <laughs> no, and stay yes. overnight in a ghastly hotel and not sleep very well, which is my was my focus group life before. And like you said, mm. it is so important to to selling in a brand, the way it looks and what people remember and what people are getting from the packaging and the brand overall is hugely important it's quite yeah it sort of feels like it's what brands should be doing or could be doing themselves but you can't when it's your own because you're too close or you're Mm. too embarrassed or Mm. you're not that kind of but you know and it's you're kind of making it I don't know you're sort of doing it for them but better <laughs> than if they just did that themselves well, actually the I had someone ring me up and I said I, I really think you ought to go because mm. she had a product and she just didn't know which category it should sit in in Tesco and I said because it could be in one of two categories unusually for a product and I said why don't you just take it into your local Tesco and hang out in the two categories and just ask a few shoppers if they'd expect to find it there and she said, oh, God, I never thought of doing that. And I said, well, I could do it for you. But, you know, I think you're smart enough to do it yourself. And because she was just really speculating about who the customers would be and mm. where her product should go. And I said, well, just go and ask a few people and, and yeah. see, because you're going to get some sort of insight. So, yeah, I mean, mostly a lot of clients haven't really got time to do it themselves. And mm. or they'll get in touch with me and they'll say, we've, we've got a meeting with the buyer. And we want to have something different. And the videos that I shoot of shoppers talking about products 
is live stuff straight from the customer. It's not a boring PowerPoint, though I do do those too. And so that's a quite an interesting and rich thing to take uh, to the buyer mm. and show them. Is Live reactions are really good. Um, I had a client, I've got a lovely client, and they're a sustainable seafood business in Cornwall and they make crab and they sell it in Waitrose and he said well I can only really afford a day and I said well fine let's see what we can do so we went to Waitrose East Putney which is full of very very smart people with lots of money and um, we sort of hung out there and he was sampling his product and he's really charming I mean he's so charming he had all this crab and he was offering crab out to people in this amazing way and then I would take them off after they'd had a bit of crab or before and say, well, have you ever bought the product? And one of the things that came out of it was crab is relatively expensive. And in fact, his product would feed two people. But he had not thought to put that on the packaging. Mm. And so the minute you put two, you know, this feeds two people on there, it transforms it from something that would be a luxury to something that's going to feed a couple or a husband and wife thrown into a salad. And it hadn't occurred to him. And I've had another client recently where I said, does your product serve two people? And they said, well, yeah, but we haven't really put that on there. And you think, but in terms of the value of a product, the perceptions of value, that's really important to do. And so that was just a tiny thing that came out of one day of research. And he's changed his packaging. And now, of course, it looks like much more value. And he also said to me, can you find me people under 35 who are buying my crab? Because waitresses believe it's a really old age profile and everybody's over 55. And I have a feeling that younger people are getting into crab. So that was my brief. So to roam around Waitrose looking for <laughs> people who are under 35 and they're just saying, excuse me, have you ever tried this chap's crab? And luckily, I found some people who said, oh, my God, his crab is the best. And I've tried everybody's crab, but his is the best. And if Waitrose ever delisted it, that would be a nightmare because it's my favourite, favourite thing in life. And of course, I think I, I buy it. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Do you? Is it like... It's, it's a black packaging. It's got a crab black, on the front. And like orange and blue. Yeah, orange and blue. You see, I you buy it about once a week. I'm not even kidding. There you go. <laughs> because um, because my, yeah, it's seafood and eat it. It's <laughs> so delicious. But because my, I was just kind of thinking about it when you were saying about the cost. But because my boyfriend eats so much, he's got a really physical job, and I always say I'm like we because it is quite expensive, and I say no, we'll get one come on, like, that's enough. And I always have to get two. And I'm like, oh. And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And I'm under 35, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he had a new bar at Waitrose. And so for him to be able to go back with some evidence that younger people were really into mm. it and thought that his product was better than, you know, the, the prevailing or M&S yeah. or whatever, was, was just, he said it was really helpful. That's great. So, and I really love doing that because I think that empowering thing, for him just to stand there, and hear everybody tasting his crab and saying how amazing it was. And we just made the connection, you know, here's your sample of crab and there is the crab across the way. And I think a lot of people often sample but don't sell from their table. Um, mm. And you really need to make that connection. You really need to go, right, here's my product and you can buy some. So that you're doing that. You're not just thinking, oh, I'll just feed people. You, you've actually got to push it a bit further, I think. Because people do feel obligated because they've had a little sample. And so you are setting up in, in a slight obligation, reciprocal obligation mm, to buy. Definitely. Yeah, the guilt. <laughs> yeah, you immediately <laughs> feel, oh. Oh, well, how lovely that you... He's the, a really lovely guy. Say, His he? brother is the fishmonger, is the fisherman oh, down in wow. Cornwall. So it is literally the two of them. And, and That's brilliant. Waitrose oh, found that. them in a shack 
in Cornwall, you know, doing crab. And they said, well, actually, you know, if you're going to supply us, we're going to have to have a bit of a difference, maybe a door between where the crab comes in and where the crab goes out. <laughs> you know, so that, and Waitrose have been really supportive to him as a small supplier and they've paid him on time and everything. So, that's, but that's the kind of business I really, really love working with is mm. those really ethically strong small businesses like that. Like um, I've just done some brand consulting with um, some farmers in Pembrokeshire and they got in touch and they said, we want to make a biltong because we we have beef cattle on our farm. We think we can make a product and sell because they're down in Pembrokeshire. It's miles from any market. It's very difficult for people in Wales to trade because they're not near big conurbations. You think London, it's easy, but there's people you can sell to. And so he was making this beautiful biltong and they sent me their you know brown paper container with it in and their label on the front and they put from our farm and they had a little red tractor and it was just the cutest thing I mean the cutest thing because a lot of biltong marketing is a very masculine it's all you know it's all about the protein or it's very South African you know and there's nothing that really says this is grass-fed and beautiful Welsh beef and da 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 and I think they're doing really well and it you know, they kind of they had their list of questions and I got on the phone with them and you know, sent me all the PDFs of the branding. And it was just so lovely to be able to help them and just reassure them and say, that looks great. I think you're going to do really well with it. Yeah, just having that input from someone who's, who's got the experience and you've seen a lot of different brands. And being it's quite helpful. removed, you know, in Pembrokeshire or somewhere, you know, where you're you're not in a big city and... You know, obviously not everything's happening in London, but a lot is. And, you know, there's a lot more Whole Foods, Planet Organics, these shops that are selling the new innovative yep. yeah. brands. And, you know, I wonder whether the added kind of help from, well, certainly the added help from someone like you who knows the market so well, because they might not see other brands doing, you know, doing things and get that inspiration for where how far they could take it mm, I mean I think that's true they had done a great job and they'd obviously found a good designer and they they thought it through but they were sort of you know like should we should we put on gluten-free or is grass-fed more important or you know we're not low salt because obviously built on has salt in it is that a problem mm. you know so those those sorts of discussions really but most of all they've just made a really really good product which is what I say to yeah. everyone you know you can't dress up a a pig's ear and pretend it's going to be something beautiful I mean you probably can now actually somewhere in East London but um, <laughs> you know you the most important thing is to make something that tastes beautiful or, and looks delicious whatever it is so that people's taste buds remember it that's why Innocent did so well because those little fruity drinks were so unlike anything else out there at the time they were so much better you know so you just have one little taste of them and you'd be like oh my god these are yeah. You know, and then you remember it. So I think it's the same with cakes. It's the same with, you know, sometimes I have a really average energy ball. There's a few average energy balls mm-hmm. out there. And there's a brand called Kitchen Soul Food. And she spices her energy balls in the most beautiful way. Beautiful cardamom. And you have one of those and you really think, oh, wow, wow, the spicing is so beautiful. You know, so you kind of, you remember it on your palate. And I think that's... That's really what people need to go for. So what other elements are there of your business? You do some speaking. 
I do some speaking, yes, indeed. I have to sit down and write two presentations next week for something at Nottingham Trent University, which is an innovation hub for food businesses in Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire. And it's free, free, and it's next Friday, if you're in Nottinghamshire or Derbyshire and anywhere else. So, yeah, I will be talking through, I suppose, branding mistakes to avoid and things to think about in your branding. And I've got lots of visual examples. So I've just got reams and reams of pack shots that I show to people and say, and I'm not I'm not being overly prescriptive, but I'm just saying here are some things that confuse consumers. Mm. Here are some things that make it easier for them. And so I do quite a lot of that, which is very enjoyable. And actually, considering I used to be incredibly shy, has been really good for me. <laughs> so, and I, I just really love it. You get this fabulous energy with a room full of, food businesses that's like nothing else it's really really addictive just having a load of people there and being able to talk to them they'll come up to you and show you the branding and you just get to meet a whole universe of people doing amazing things with great bravery because I think there's nothing braver actually than setting up your own business and particularly in food which is tricky and it's just I love it I really love it it's, it's just gives me a huge buzz and working from home you can you know, you can get a bit kind of cut off from people. So it's really nice to have that opportunity to go and just be around people. Definitely. It's such a friendly industry. We always say this. Yeah, we do. Yeah, it is. It's amazingly collaborative. I don't think mm. there are other industries like this where people are supportive of each other. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it so nice is people are willing to pay it forward. You know, if they've mm. had a bit of success and you, you'll get a lot of people who are willing, you know, to help out. Um, I mean, I get lots of people contacting me if I can help them, if I can open my address book, if I can give them a lead. But there is a brilliant closed group on Facebook called Food Hub, which I tell mm. everyone to join, because if you want to get your product on the shelves anywhere, you can search it. And all the questions you've got about shelf life, how, where do I get my product tested, all of that stuff is in that in that forum and somebody's asked that question before or you can post a question and people will re respond but it's an amazing resource yeah that's a really good tip actually ryan told ryan us about the food that. hub yeah and yeah it is it is incredible and it's and even that because i i get little um alerts on my facebook about it and every so often i'll just out of curiosity go and see what the answers were and people get like 50 replies yeah, and it's just, yeah. it's really touching to see how people help each other. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a lonely thing, you know, setting up a business on your own. It's really lonely. And I think to have a community like that, there's another one called Freelance Heroes that I dip into occasionally in a similar kind of way. And that's freelancers, all sorts of disciplines. Just talking about what it feels like to be freelance and when you get that fear that you won't get another job and that kind of thing and you'll never work again. And it's just I go there because it's it's just a really lovely supportive community of people who sometimes feel like you do, you know, and that's that's it's really important. Yeah. I'm interested to ask you how you developed your public speaking skills. So you mentioned that you originally quite shy. So how did you have how did you go about doing that? Well, I went into doing focus groups because I thought I cannot be cripplingly shy my whole life. And if I have to talk to strangers and make them feel at ease, then that would be a way of correcting my shyness. So I'd kind of got over that a bit. But then presenting to clients, I found quite tricky. Mm. I think what I do is I absolutely put my focus on the people in the audience. So what do they need to hear? How can I get it across to them? How can I make it simple? How can I add 
value and information and just I put my entire focus on them. And if you do that, then you haven't got space to be nervous because you're just thinking, oh, there looks to be some fun people in the audience and that person looks smiley over there and what about that one over there? And you get a kind of adrenaline anyway when you do it. Um, but I think it's a great opportunity now. There are so many opportunities for people to talk about their businesses and it's so powerful. So I think if you have the chance to do it, you should do it. Because the, the, there's events popping up all over where people talk about how they started a business. And I think it's endlessly interesting actually listening to people. Which is why. Yeah. <laughs> we learned just so much. I could keep, I, yeah, I could listen all day to people talking about how they started things or what they're up to. So how can brands make their products stand out? Don't lack confidence. Your brand is going to be up against some established brands in almost every category that people know. So if you look a bit timid, that's not going to work for you. So you've almost got to fake it till you make it. So you need to kind of dial up those qualities I think in your packaging or your branding or whatever that are going to make your product look like a confident product on the shelf I don't know if I'm explaining that very well but I think it's you've, you've got to look like you're an established product because people can spot it a mile off now and it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to have very expensive branding I know people who spent 500 pounds on branding people have done it themselves if you look at source shop They've got like a Dynamode label and they've just got beautiful coloured sources and this black Dynamo label that says what the varieties are. And they did that themselves. It's just a very strong visual identity. So it's just really thinking about what would that strong visual identity be and not trying to overload it. So a lot of people want to tell their entire story on their packaging. Don't do that. You could do that on Instagram. You could do that on your website. Just what are the things that the person buying the product is going to want to know? Like, you know, does it serve two people? Is it a really versatile product that I could use in lots of different ways? Are the ingredients really beautiful? And I talked about Kitchen Soul Food, but she wraps up her energy balls, if you buy them by post, in bright purple wrapping paper. And she has a card and it says, my balls have soul. <laughs> and it's just it's fun you know it's just a card but it just says my balls have soul and she uses that right across her social media as well and I think it's just kind of having having a point of view I mean in her case it's about mental health and eating well it's very important for your mental health and so that's very much her thing um so she's kind of coming at it from a soulful angle but it's kind of like what are the two or three things you want to get across and you can always test your packaging by just showing it to someone very quickly and just taking it away and going, what do you remember? This is what we mm. used to do. We used to do some focus That's groups uh, when we were testing logos or changes, you know, to things. And we just show it to people quickly, take it away. What do you remember? Because you, they've got to remember something. You mm. want them to remember something. So in your case, it might be, you know, it might be EK. You know, it's just finding out what that thing is and not being afraid. I think it's just, you have actually got to shout. You have got to shout. I mean, there's different ways of shouting that you've got to shout. I really like the cheeky messages. I know that Innocent do that on the kids' packs. If you look at the bottom, it says something like, why are you looking at my bottom? Or yeah. stop looking at my bottom. Yeah. And it, I used to work in a school and the kids absolutely love it. Every single time, just fell about. Yeah, <laughs> fell about. hilarious. They couldn't, they just thought it was like, nothing's funnier when you're seven than yeah. the word bottom. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> and just little touches. Um, and I know Rude House do it as well. It's like, caught you looking here. You, you're going to enjoy our Instagram sort of thing. Mm. Just those little messages for the people who are looking at the packaging in detail. Yeah, it's I like think it's little... just, just being a little bit quirky. Mm. Um, the trouble with the innocent tone of voice is that everybody's copying it now. So yeah. you, you've kind of got to be a bit clever about it. I think Jimmy's Ice Coffee, I'm working with them next week on some store research. And I think he says, shake me up like a Polaroid picture. You know, he's, I mean, he's just got kind of quite fun things on there. And goodness knows there's plenty of examples out there to go and inspire you. What do you think creates longevity in a marketplace that feels quite trend-driven? That is a brilliant question. And do you know, nobody's ever asked me that before. I think that is top question. <laughs> well, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. I think probably being vegan is or vegetarian or plant-based, whatever you want to call it, is going to serve brands quite well in the future. I see a rush of brands heading towards being plant-based, like Bowl Foods, one mm-hmm. of my clients, got rid of all their chicken and stuff and just made themselves over into being entirely plant-based. Because I think it really strikes a chord <laughs> with millennials, that that whole thing. I mean, in theory, it also want to make your product cheaper if you're not putting meat in it. So I think that's that's definitely a trend that's that, interesting. that is going to stay because I think people are eating differently. And I think it's it's become normalised much faster probably than many people thought, thought it would. And certainly in London, I think maybe sometimes outside of London, not so much. But eating less meat is like a massive trend. I think the other thing is the rise and rise of non-alcoholic drinks. That, yeah. That's a really interesting trend, which I like, because I can't drink very much. Mm. I'd like to be able to, but I can't. And so I'm always looking for things, like, for example, I was thrilled when Seedlip appeared, and now you've got all sorts of really interesting shrubs, which are not super sweet, but are kind of, or drinking vinegars. I mean, I think there's a lot more to do in that area, which I personally find fascinating, because I think... You know, we've been fobbed off for so long with J2O in pubs and, I mean, really ghastly stuff. And not, I don't want another elderflower cordial. I really <laughs> don't want to love another one. And that's what you get offered. And so bring it on, I say. I mean, you know, I want those things available to drink. I'm with you there. I'm just, it feels like it's taking a lot longer for uh, big pubs and bar chains to get things like kombucha and... Yeah, just things that aren't super sweet because you can have one elderflower cordial and that's nice, but that's enough. You don't want another one. Yeah, because your blood sugar is going to be all over the yeah. place. And if you're not particularly eating, yeah, I mean, I think kombucha is brilliant. But yeah. I think that's a really, really good good example. And I think things like ethical colas. I mean, mm. you, you, you've got Karma Cola, who I think are amazing. And I think you'll we'll see more things like that, but actually breaking the stranglehold of those big brands like Coke is really challenging and really hard really hard because they've got the distribution they've got the clout they've got the they can do the promotional spend you know that's the trouble of always for challenger brands is coming up against that one big incumbent in the category that can outspend you you know you can take on those brands but there'll only be a certain proportion of people who'll go yeah i'll pay that for that brand i think that's the other thing you know if you have too many premium brands there's a limit to how many people will spend money on your premium brand because not everybody has that money to spend. Yeah, yeah or you or you 
will buy it once because you'd like to try it, yeah. but you can't afford every week yeah. to get that. So yeah. it's, a, it's a sort of treat buy. So I was doing some work for Naked Bars and people love them because they're 75 key. Whereas at Deliciously Ella, this woman said to me, well, hang on, if I buy those for my packed lunch and I buy them, you know, three of those, that's 10 quid just on my energy ballpark of my lunch and I can't afford to spend that. How do those kind of brands get to that 75 pence price though? Is that just pure volume? Well, I think it's size. Um, It's size and ingredients because actually if you look at Primal Pantry, it's probably got a higher proportion of nuts and stuff Mm. and this is my personal favourite because I think that, I just think she's, she does, Susie Susie does a great job. Naked bars aren't bad. I mean, if you put them next to a Mars bar, they're probably, they're probably better. And they were a pioneer when you, go back and look at the kind of whole foods revolution they were actually quite a pioneer um but really it's the size and the other thing i say to people is they say well i've made this and it's got all these beautiful ingredients and i said and what's your retail price will anybody be able to afford it and will you make enough money to live so will you make enough profit basically or should you in fact make them slightly smaller Mm. like i was buying pear pastries from my baker this morning and she'd made huge ones because she'd injured her hand and she couldn't fold them up into pear frangipan shapes like that and so she just rolled them out and cut them and I said my god these are huge you really you you should cut them in half I would still bought it at that same price but I mean you'd give me a huge one which is lovely but it's kind of like I don't need that much so it's that kind of that's the most common thing I see is people being over generous with ingredients and quality and making the product too big and they'll yeah. never make any money on it. That's what you see. Mm. It's pretty hard when you're if you want to include a high proportion of nuts. It's just yeah. so expensive. Yeah. But I think people know that. I mean I think Yeah. You know, I know when I look at Susie's thing, yeah. her primal bars, if I sh- I'm gonna have to pay more. We've got more nuts in, I will pay more. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You're going to get different nutrition from them. Yes. So let's move on to some lifestyle. Do you have a typical week? Do you structure your week in a certain way? Oh, well, I can't really because I might have clients ringing up on the Friday mm. again. Can you can you go into store next Tuesday? You know, we've got a particular problem or we need you to research it. So actually what I love about my job is I don't really know what I'll be doing two weeks. I might know a week ahead. I won't necessarily know two weeks ahead. And I like that. That suits me very well. But what I do find is if I've gone and done, I don't know, like I did I did 75 store interviews with shoppers over something like, I don't know, like three days. And I come out, my head is just scrambled. Yeah. So I've had so much mm-hmm. information. I've been connecting with people, total strangers, who I need to do something for me and I'll come out and I literally I can't take any more stimulus yeah. so I can't even listen to podcasts to relax because it's too much coming at me and that's when I'll go off and have a swim at Hampstead Heath because I at the ladies pond because I can just swim it out and I'll get in there and the water will be so cold I'll just be in that minute and it's the most amazing reset so that's that, that that's I, I need that balance um otherwise I just get really really jaded if I have too much store stuff because it is challenging and it is you have to be on kind of top form talking to people is exhausting it yeah. really is so you know if you've done, if you've done a um, stall or whatever you know you've yeah. done a sampling session 
it's yeah. it's like that it's it's except you're not well you are repeating because i do repeat the questions it's exactly like that mm. and you come back and you just want to look at a wall do you get that thing where because i did a three-day wedding fair and i had these kind of three or four standard questions i'd be asking and i got to the end of the third day and i'd be talking to people and then i'd stop and be like should i did I ask you that already? I'm so relieved <laughs> that you're saying that because actually I have occasionally when I, when I've been I've been in the arts and um I'll have asked somebody excuse me do you buy X because sometimes when it's slow you sometimes you may have to go and find the people they won't mm. necessarily come to the fixture and I've gone round and and the woman said well the woman said to me you've already asked me that. <laughs> I thought, oh, no oh god I can't even remember people's faces that's a disaster and that's when I know I need to go and take a break and go yeah. and sit in the coffee mm. shop or go and sit in my car or something and just a let those shoppers leave the shop yeah. <laughs> so that I don't interview them again uh, but yeah because you're you're just very very focused on it yeah uh, I do really enjoy filming people's hands talking about product that's really fun, oh, that's fun. so I'll do their faces but mostly people say oh, I haven't got any makeup on I say fine I'll just do your hands just talk about the product and hold the product and that's, that's fine cool. because then there's you know it's it's people are much happier about they like pointing at things and but that's another big ask I mean to say to someone can I film you mm. your hands or can I just film your comment you know it's all you Putting yourself out there all the time. How do you film them on your phone? Yeah, just on my iPhone. Then I WhatsApp them to the client. So Thanks. just really short little yeah. clips. And WhatsApp is just brilliant for sharing. So okay. I just say to them, yep, I'll be WhatsApping those to you. Because you can't be doing the uploading. On the... No, so much quicker. Yeah, it is amazing. You mentioned swimming in the ladies' pond, which is amazing. What else do you do to keep well? I do Pilates a lot. So I probably, if I can fit it in three times a week, I'll do that because I really love it. Uh, walking by the river in West London, I'll go for a walk. In the summer, I'll t- grab a friend, a girlfriend, and we'll go swim in the river. Thames, that's quite nice. But it, the, it, Where can you swim in the Thames? You can swim out near Henley. Oh, nice. um, but at the moment, there's been so much rain, it's dangerous. Mm. Um, the flow is too high to swim. Okay. Um, but I'll just go. I'll just get immersed in nature. I just try and get out of London because London is a busy place to be. Yeah, you crave that break, or at least I do crave just a bit more space. Yeah, it's so important. And also, space. weirdly, cooking. So if I've done um, I've done my twenty five interviews or whatever I need to do that day, I will come home and I will go into the kitchen and start making cooking something from scratch because it's almost the antithesis of what I've seen in the supermarket with everything in packets yeah and i find it really grounding so just chopping and i love anna jones recipes so i'll make her leek and tomato cassoulet with a sourdough lid which i completely adore make at least Ooh, once a week so easy it's in her first book the modern way to eat but you'll find it online yeah i've got the book yeah um and i just i i just in fact i'm going to make it tonight so I must get some basil in Old Street if there is any. Um, but I find that just really, really grounding, just making something from scratch. Doing something where you can only do that, whether it's swimming or cooking, yeah. you're right, it really resets the brain and kind of gets rid of any anxieties or stresses left over. And sleep. I like my sleep. And so if mm-hmm. I had a really stressy time, I'll put myself to bed early because I've got so much swilling around in my brain and it just needs to settle down and sort it out overnight. 
Do you have a vision for what do you want to carry on doing? Are you going to bring out a different book? What's, do you have a plan or anything? I don't think I could write a third one because it would inevitably have to cover social media, which is changing yeah. on a daily basis. Mm. So I don't know. I think these stand the test of time, actually, and I Definitely. don't know what I could add. I like writing the odd short piece on Medium. Um, you know, I've written one about how to do your own research. So I like, I do really like writing, but I don't think, I don't know what I'd put in another book, really, to be honest. Mm. I, I see lots of food consultants writing books. But I'm, I never wanted to write a book with fluff in it. I just, there's too much fluff out there. So I want to bring more fluff no. to the market because I think it's unfair. Uh, and plans, well, I don't know, just finding a few new clients, trying new things. I mean, Unilever pushed me out of my comfort zone, going down to Pop Brixton, speaking at new places. It's all new. It's all new. Solving problems for clients. I think that's what I really like doing. Going back and saying, people love this because of this, and this is what you, you could do. That's what gives me a real kick. Yeah, that's quite mm-hmm. rewarding. And that Got could, there. you know, that could just be a little consultation or you know a day of insight for someone and that's very sustaining really Mm. so no I don't have great plans I mean as you say every client presents its new challenges and different absolutely yeah 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 and I think you were saying something about obstacles I think it's taken a while for what I do to be regarded as a valid way of doing things and it takes clients a while to sort of think well how how could that work they almost have to see it so they almost have to feel it if you like it's like trying a food stuff you know I I some like Jimmy's iced coffee I was chatting away to them and she was saying well kind of what value will we get from this and I thought well I'll just send her a couple of videos from another project and I sent them to her and she said oh my god I get it now I kind of get the insights I see how that could work I see how that could be useful because all of my talking didn't compare with actually seeing a shopper talking about what they do so sometimes you have to you have to sometimes you have quite a long selling mm. to people before they kind of get it so often I might pe- meet people but I might not work with them for five years because they have to work their way towards a having some budget and b thinking it's going to be right for them where can people find you if they want to get in touch about working with you or if they want to find you on social media you can find me at my website, which is tessastuart.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter, because I'm quite noisy there. You can find me on Instagram, all at Tessa, Tessa underscore Stuart on Twitter. I can't remember what it's on Instagram, which is terrible. And your books are on Amazon. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the episode and the series, because that was the final episode of Series 2. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you get a notification for when season three comes out. And if you could leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be amazing. You can find us on Instagram at What's Cooking Podcast, on Twitter at What's Cooking Pod, or you can drop us an email at the What's Cooking Podcast at gmail.com. Bye.